church uh, there in Auckland. And so uh, Jennifer's last Sunday as our music director will be next Sunday. Uh, and so uh, it's fitting then that we have Soup Sunday so that uh, that we can gather around and share memories and all of those wonderful things after after church next Sunday. But Jennifer's last Sunday to lead music will be next Sunday, and then uh, Fred will take over as music director at the beginning of October. And so we are both, of course, uh, grieved over uh, over your departure, uh, but also thankful that uh, that Fred is willing to take up that mantle, at least at this point, is willing to take up that mantle. So uh, we won't uh, we won't try to deter him from doing that. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11. We've been working our way through this letter for some time now. And the passage that I'm going to read today and that we're going to look at today, we actually looked at last week. Um, It deals with gender roles within the church, and so it's obviously a very important issue in our culture at the moment, and it was worthy of, uh, of our attention for a second time, and so we'll be, um, uh, we'll be looking at this again. Just remind you that this is one of the more difficult, maybe, maybe even the most difficult passage in the New Testament. Um, and you'll, if you weren't here with us last week or haven't read it before, you'll find out why as we get into it. So, But I also want to remind you that it is God's Word, uh, that God inspired the Apostle Paul to write it, not just for the benefit of the Corinthian church, but also for the benefit of his church in Clanton. And so there are things uh, that we can draw from it as well. So let's give attention to God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man." For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God." Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Doesn't nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The grass withers. And the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray.
Lord, once again, we ask for your help in understanding a difficult passage, a passage that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us in our culture at the moment, but that has bearing for us, for our church, in our culture at this very moment. So, Lord, would you be at work through the preaching of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you weren't here last week, I explained everything, and you missed it, so sorry. Uh, all, all of the stuff, all of the burning questions that you had about this passage in particular were all answered in last week's sermon, and you're not going to get them this week. So, you know what? I'm sorry, but I'm just kidding. I want to remind you just of a couple of the things that we said last week so that we have a good frame for going into this sermon. It's... It's typical, right, when we read a passage like this to focus on the details that we don't understand, right? So what head coverings and angels and what what exactly is going on here? But the smart way to read the Bible, really any book, but especially the Bible, the smart way to read it is to begin with what's clear, to begin with the main points, the, the main ideas, and then begin to answer the details, um, the details from there. Really, that's a smart way to do anything, right? Begin at, begin at the 30,000 foot view and then work your way down. Now, not every one of our difficulties with this passage will get answered, okay? For instance, we're not 100% sure what Paul means by angels in this passage. Mo- where most people land is that angels, good angels, are present in the worship of the church. Um, unseen supernatural beings are present in the worship of the church, and they like to see worship in, in good order, right? And so, again, that's our, that's our best guess, okay? Paul... Um, we're, we're, we're getting one half of a phone conversation. We're hearing one end of a conversation that has two people in it. And so sometimes we have to make our best guess as to what they're possibly talking about. But this passage is not, and we've said this last week, this passage is not primarily about head coverings. Whatever those head coverings may look like, it was common for women in Corinth um, to put their hair up and probably to wear some kind of shawl. That's what we see from statue evidence, right? If you wore your hair long and flowing, that's what, you know, disreputable women did. So, ladies, put it up. Um, right? And that was, that was typical. To, to be a woman and to look like a woman in Corinth was to cover your head, particularly in public worship in the church or in other in other worship settings. Remember that there were many uh, pagan temples in Corinth as well. So it was common for women to look like women uh, by putting up their hair and covering it with some kind of shawl. Okay, uh, And it was common now for men, Roman men, to cover their heads with their togas. Paul says, no, 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 we're, we're, we're more like the Jews who did not cover their heads. Right? You want to leave your head uncovered in worship. Okay, but, but Paul's basic message is women, you need to look like women. Men, you need to look like men. Okay? And, and the point of the passage is saying this, that men and women have different roles before God, that men and women are different, God has made them different, and they have different roles in the church and in the family. Man and woman are not the same. Their roles are distinct. That's one aspect of this passage. And yet, man and woman are equal before God in dignity and worth and value. So this passage affirms both, okay? That that both man and woman are equally made in God's image 
and they have distinct roles before him. Just because they are equal does not mean that they are the same. Does that and that's and that's one cultural assumption that this passage challenges, right? Our culture, our culture says that to be equal means to be the same, and so to be to ensure, and this is how it works culturally, to ensure that everyone is treated equally, we must treat everyone the same. But that is not what the Bible teaches. Um, the Bible, uh, the Bible is clear that there is beauty in that diversity. That man and woman are distinct. Now they're both, they're both, they both have the same equal value, but they are distinct. And both of those can be supported. Alright, and we, we unpacked most of that last week. Uh, most of that we talked about the authority, the hierarchy set up in the church. Verse 3 is where, verse 3 is kind of the verse to understand everything else in the passage. So let's look at it. Paul says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Paul is saying there is a hierarchy of authority in the church. That there is a distinction between man and woman in the church. And we looked at that authority last week. And I just remind you that some of the things we said, right, that again, where the Bible challenges our culture, uh, one assumption that we often make is that authority means superiority. And in fact, we use that, te- we use that terminology in the military. We use that terminology corporately, right? We say, he is, she is his superior. He is her superior. She is his inferior, right? But that is not the way that the Bible talks. Just because someone has authority does not mean they are superior. Okay? So the Bible challenges that cultural assumption that authority means superiority. It does not. That one can hold authority but not be superior. Or one can be submissive and not be inferior. Right? So when Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the wife ought to submit to her husband, she is not saying that the wife is inferior to the husband. Sadly, many men have taken that position. They have used passages like this in Ephesians 5 to basically treat women, treat even their wives as subhuman. Men, if you have done that, the Bible says that you are wrong. That that is actually a rejection of God's authority for you as a husband and as a leader. Right? So we want to guard against the mis- the misuse of authority. That is not what the Bible means when it says that the husband is the head of the home. Okay? Or is a leader in the church. It is not that men are to abuse their authority. Alright? And the visible sign of that authority in Corinth was some kind of head covering. We don't know precisely what that was. But the situation that Paul is addressing looks like this. Apparently, in the worship gatherings in Corinth, um, men... Uh, Men were covering their heads and women were uncovering theirs and so they were blurring the distinction between man and woman. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how this is to work. You need to embrace your God-given gender roles. Uh, however that however that works for you, embrace your God-given gender roles. So that's why we can say this doesn't mean that men should shave their heads, right? That, that, that truly godly men have no hair at all, right? So if you are balding this morning, congratulations, you are closer to Jesus than the rest of us. That's not what Paul is saying, nor is Paul saying that women should don veils again or wear shawls. She, these are These were just cultural symbols of the authority hierarchy within the church. What Paul is saying is men, you need to act like men, godly men, and women, you need to act like women, godly women. All right, that's the, that's the humble authority piece. That's 
part one that we talked most about last week. And again, um, authority does not mean superiority. And then we went and we spent time in Genesis 2, right? Paul, Paul bases all of that off the creation of man and woman in Genesis 2, right? And we saw that man was created, uh, excuse me, that woman was created for man, right? Man and most women and even many men will readily admit, right? It is not good for man to be alone, right? Men need help. And so God created woman because men need help, right? And that for a woman to find her identity, particularly a wife, to find her identity in being the complementary help to her husband. Now, man still bears the responsibility of leadership, but the wife is to come along and support him in that. Okay, that's the, that's the distinction that we covered last week, the distinction between man and woman. Man is, respo- is the responsible head. Hopefully he's responsible, but he's, he will be held responsible. Let's put it that way. All right. Whether he acts responsibly or not, ladies, he will be held responsible by God to lead his home and to lead God's church. And then the wife is called to be the complement uh, of her husband, not his equal, right? Not, we don't have two men. We have a man and a woman, right? When a woman marries a king, she does not become king number two. She becomes a queen. Okay. They, ha- they are, they are on the same level, and yet they have different roles, different responsibilities. That is how God has designed uh, the home and the church to work. Which then would raise the question, or maybe even the objection, that you could say, well, sure, Kevin, you would say that. You're a man. Isn't this, isn't this just another way that we can prop up male domination in society, male domination in the church, isn't this, uh, isn't this how women get denied basic rights, right? This is, these are the same arguments that have been used for centuries to, not centuries, for millennium, uh, to mistreat women and to deny them their rights. Even in, even in societies that have held the Bible, even in Jewish society that had the Old Testament, right, for men to place themselves in a position of superiority above women. Aren't you just using the same arguments to do the same thing? And I'm going to argue that even though it has been misused, that is not God's intention. And I'm going to argue that based on this passage, and then we're also going to go back. So let's look at that second heading of diverse equality. Last week we looked at humble authority. Now we're going to look look at diverse equality. Hierarchy is not the only thing we see in the Bible. We also see equality. Look again at 1 Corinthians 11. And I want you to look at verse 3 in particular. Paul says, and I'll read it again, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now think about that last comparison he makes. The head of Christ is God. The head of the Son is the Father. Is Paul saying, and and him putting that there is incredibly important, is Paul saying that Jesus the Son is inferior in being to God the Father? That Jesus is less God than God the Father? And the answer to that question is no. Uh, and the, the, the references that support 
this are too numerous to mention, but the Gospel of John is one example, Ephesians 1 is another example, right? What the New Testament uniformly teaches across all of its books is that the Father and the Son are equal in substance, in power, and glory, that they are the same. Jesus is not a minor deity. He's not half God. He is fully God, right? So the Son is equal in substance with the Father. What Paul is saying right here is that the Son submits his will to the Father. So there can be a distinction. What I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is there can be a distinction in role without there being a distinction in being. That the Son can submit to the Father's authority without becoming less than himself. And the woman can submit to her husband's authority without becoming less than herself. That is, the, that is the argument that Paul is making. That in the same way that Jesus submitted to his Father's authority, and Jesus said that repeatedly in the Gospel of John, I have come to do the will of my Father, and the Father has sent me. Right? There's a distinction there in role. The Father does not come himself. Jesus is the one who comes. The Father plans redemption. Jesus is the one who carries it out. There's a distinction in role without there being a distinction in being. I know that's really deep, heady stuff, but that's how the Trinity works. Paul is using the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to show how husband and wife also ought to work. So Jesus is not less God than his Father. So even though man is the head of woman, she is not less human than man. You following me? If Jesus is not less God than the Father because he submits to his will, so also woman is not less human than man because she submits to his authority. Okay? That's the, that's the first place. And by the way, just as an aside, if you think, and I know some have used it this way, but if you think that the Bible, um, that the Bible reinforces male superiority or, or, a, a patriarchy, uh, then you have not read uh, the life of Jesus closely enough. Uh, Jesus honors women. Uh, in fact, uh, Jesus, uh, more often than not, the women are the ones who get it. It is the disciples, it is the male disciples who look like buffoons through the course of the gospel. Okay? Um, I mean, Luke's gospel opens with a story of two faithful women, uh, Elizabeth, who is barren and has a child named John, and Mary, who is a virgin, an unmarried virgin, and she has a child, of course, Jesus, right? Women are the last people at the cross, and they are the first people at the empty tomb. They are the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection in a day when a, a woman witness did not count, her testimony would not have stood up in court. And yet Jesus honors women by having them be the first witnesses. So the Bible does not support a, a male superiority or patriarchy. That's just an aside. All right, so um, verse 3, verses 4 and 5. I want you to, this is just a, a minor point, but it also shows that men and women are equal in the church, equal in terms of their value. He says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonor his, dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. What are man and woman doing in the church? They're praying and they're prophesying. 
The issue that Paul has is that some are doing it with their heads covered, some aren't. Uh, but what I, what's important for us to see is that both men and women are doing the same thing in public worship. Both are praying, both are prophesying. You'll have to wait on the prophesy part till we get into chapter 14. Because that'll be fun. But right for right now, I just want to point out that both men and women are functioning in the public worship gathering in the same way. The issue is not that women are praying or that women are prophesying. The issue is that some women are unveiling their heads and dishonoring their husbands. All right, that's that's the issue that Paul has. And then one more look in this passage at this diverse equality Verses 11 and 12. Paul says, nevertheless, right? He, in case somebody misunderstands, Paul is, Paul is doing this in case somebody misunderstands what he's saying about male headship. In case you're inclined to misunderstand or abuse the authority you have, men, listen up, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. They are dependent on each other, particularly in the Lord. One is not higher than the other. It's not as if woman is always dependent on man, but they are actually interdependent, right? And then he points again to creation. He says, yes, the first woman was made out of man, but every man since then has been born of woman, right? We are interdependent. We are diverse equals within the church. Man and woman are equal in their differences before God. And look, we can hold both of those in tension. We have a culture that says, no, you can't. Equal must mean same. And the Bible repeatedly says, no, we can... Both people, both man and woman can be equal before God in their differences. They both have value in their differences, in their distinct roles. So let's go back to, let's go back again to Genesis where Paul's getting this from. Last week we looked at Genesis 2 where we saw gender distinctions being made. Now we're going to look at Genesis 1, where we see gender equality. Or at least the Bible's version of gender equality. Look at Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man, humanity, in our image... After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So right here we see that God creates both male and female in his image. They are both image bearers before God. They both represent together God's likeness to the rest of creation. What what does it mean to be an image? Well, in the ancient world, when this was written, if you were a king in charge of a whole empire, what you did is you took little statues of yourself or pictures of yourself, usually statues, and you placed them throughout your empire as a reminder to your subjects who was the king, who was in charge. And so what is being said here is that man and woman together represent God's authority to the rest of creation. Right? In verse 28, their first command is be fruitful and multiply. Their job was to fill up the earth with visible representations of God's authority. 
right? They represented God. They did not represent themselves. They represented God's authority over the whole earth to the rest of creation. There's a lot of things that we can apply out of that. First and foremost is the idea that both man and woman have equal dignity before God. There is, woman is not a subhuman species to man. Both are equal in their dignity before God. Even in their distinctions, even in their differences, they are both equal in their dignity before God. But the second thing that we can apply out of that is that when it comes to our genders and identities and the roles we play in the world, we take our cues not from in here, but from up there. That when it comes to how we live out our manhood or our womanhood, we take our cues from the Creator, not from ourselves. We are His image, we are not our own image. We bear His image before the world. And so that means that to be an, to be an image bearer means that we ought to follow the priorities and honor the source of the one whose image we bear. We are not our own representatives, we represent God. That means that man and woman are not left to define their own identities. God doesn't just place a man and woman in the garden and say, Okay, you guys figure it out. Whatever you decide... Whatever you decide will be best, you know, you be best. That'll, that'll work. You just do whatever you want to do. No, he places them in the garden, right? He creates them and then he gives them the priorities, right? He tells them what to do. Be fruitful and multiply. That shouldn't be too hard. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the earth in my name. So as soon as God creates, he commands, right? Man and woman have roles to fill and they don't make those up. We don't invent uh, when it, when it comes down to it, I mean, yes, there are all kinds of cultural expressions of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. But at the core of it, we don't invent our identities. God has, God has given those. Uh, God has even recreated those. We'll see those in a, we'll see that in a second. But we're not left to just kind of figure it out. God has told us, this is what man and woman do. This is how, this is how I call you to live. So, there is equality in creation. But maybe even more important than that, there is equality in redemption. There's equality in creation. Man and woman are equal in creation, equal in created glory before God. But they are also equal in redemption. Turn to uh, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. 27 and 28. This again is the Apostle Paul saying the exact... This is the same Paul who just said... uh, Who says in other places, Wives, submit to your husbands. Um, Wives, cover your head to honor your husband. Same Paul says this. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek... There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now some have read that, particularly the part where it says there's no male or female. They've, they've read that and they've taken it to mean, oh, well, gender distinctions are done away with in Jesus. There is no difference. Egalitarianism, we're the, we are the same. There is no difference between male and female. Paul says it right here. That's not what Paul means. 
Paul is not saying that gender distinctions don't exist, but he is saying that they don't affect our standing before Christ. We're still men, we're still women, they're still Jews, they're still Greeks, but Paul is saying one doesn't have the spiritual upper hand, right? That being a man doesn't give you... uh greater access to God, uh, being a woman does not make you more spiritual than a man. Paul is saying, no, your gender has nothing to do with whether you're approved before God. That's only Jesus. You don't have, uh, men as men don't have VIP status. Not in the kingdom. And that balances that authority thing we were talking about, right? That men don't have VIP status. Look, I can't tell you why God has ordained that men should lead homes or that men should lead churches. I can tell you that His Word does, but I can, I can tell you just as readily that it doesn't have anything to do with capability. All right, when we talk about gender distinctions, we're not saying that women are less capable in leadership. We're not saying that women are less capable teachers. We're not saying... Capability is not the, is not the standard, all right? Because I can, I can almost guarantee you that there are, there are some women who could stand up here behind this pulpit and do a far better job than me. Capability is not, is not the measuring stick. There are, there are women who could lead the church better. There may be women who can lead their homes better. And just maybe even as a personal theory, sometimes I wonder if God has put man in charge of homes and churches. Now, this is me talking, not the Bible, so if you just want to edit this part out later on, you're welcome to, right? But, Sometimes I wonder if God has not called men to lead families and churches because men are actually less capable and more insecure. And in, in, and in so doing, he puts men in that position so that his greater glory can be seen, right? That the less capable of the genders is the one in charge. Now, if you're offended by that, I'm sorry. I can just tell you that as far as organizing my family goes and keeping everything on track, my wife is far more capable She's far more capable at driving the car. And there are many times I just want to hand her the keys, right? And God says, sorry, bro, I gave you the keys. You got to drive, whether you're good at it or not. All right? So capability, and that's usually, that's usually one of the arguments used against this, this view of man and womanhood is that, hey, are you saying women are, are incapable of leading and teaching and being good leaders? No. In fact, in many cases, they're more capable. But God in His inscrutable wisdom has decided that men should lead homes and churches. And maybe it's so that He gets the greater glory and says, Hey, I'm going to use this buffoon to turn your home and the world upside down. Right? He did it with 12 disciples. They're the ones... Look, they're, that Jesus built His church on guys who didn't get it. And they turned the world upside down. Or he turned the world upside side down through them. So maybe, just maybe, I can look out and he'll turn my family upside down through my leadership. Right? Um, again, so that's just a personal theory. You can do with that what you will. Um, but men as men don't have special status. And women as women don't have special status before Jesus. That it is Christ alone that makes us or breaks us before God. And that is it. Which then leads us to some concluding questions about our identities. First, who are you? How are you doing at living into the roles uh, that God has created you for? 
Men, are you leading your homes in a Christ-like, sacrificial, loving way? Are you leading your homes in a Christ-like, sacrificial, loving way? Are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? I don't know what that looks like in your house. And I know that the minute I say it, uh, that brings up a whole long list of things you have not done to be like Jesus to your wife and to your home. Um, it brings up that list in my mind. All right, and that's and that's why we need Jesus. Okay, uh, and that's why we're going to get together tonight at our men's cookout, and we're going to talk about these things. Right, because God has called us to something. We we will be held responsible for our homes. And so, but the beautiful thing is God does not leave us on our own. He equips us with what we need, right? He's given us His grace. He's given us His Holy Spirit. And He gives us other men to help us out, okay? Women, do you help or hurt your husband's leadership? Do you help? Are you the, are you the suitable helper of Genesis 2? Are you His complement? Or are you trying to dominate Him? Do you help or hurt your husband's leadership? I know that it's very easy. For most of us, it's, it's very easy to hurt it because he ain't doing a whole lot to help it. All right? I refer to my previous comments about uh, the capability questions. But how are you encouraging your husband in his Christ-like, sacrificial, loving leadership? But even more fundamental than who are you is whose are you. Yes, you are either man or woman. And God has designed you that way for your own flourishing and His own glory. But underneath the who you are is the whose you are. Have you surrendered your life to the man, to Jesus Christ, to the better Adam? See, that's really the issue in our relationships, isn't it? Uh, that we, that we live, they, we live into the old man or the old woman, right? Adam and Eve squabbling in the garden, scrambling for who's gonna have authority. When the one who has ultimate authority has already come, the better Adam, the second Adam, the last Adam, the real man, he's come, and he's lived, and he's died, so that we can see what real people are supposed to live like. And He's died so that when we don't live that way, we can be forgiven. And He rose again to let us know that one day, we won't squabble about this anymore. But we will be perfect men and women, not married anymore, but perfect men and women before God, living out the reality of our gender for eternity. And it will be a beautiful thing. Have you surrendered your life to that man? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for...